everybody. It is Chris with the Running Rogue podcast. I am here with Steve. And today we're going to be talking about training again. This is going to be episode two of our series on training principles. We started our very first podcast, episode one, where we talked about our overall rogue training principles and how that ties to Arthur Lydiard's principles. Then we came back with episode seven and talked about the first principle in the context of training that we that we talk about, which is that miles matter. So we encourage you to check out episode seven. Today, episode 10, we're going to be talking about principles two and three in that training framework, which we'll get into in a second. Before we dive into our main topic, we're going to be as always, talking about some current events in the running world as we continue on this path to making all of you track and field <laughs> fans. And today's topic... If it kills us, we're yeah, going to exactly. do it. Today's topic is, some, is one I think everybody can relate to because we're going to be talking about probably the most recognized track and field athlete, which is Usain Bolt. We talked about him on our last episode in his Nitro Athletics attempt to reinvigorate track and field. Well, this week he announced that the London World Championships this summer will be his last meet. And so he says he's going to be retiring, going out on top, as he says. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Bolt and where he fits in the context of track and field and the discussions we've had in the past on who is the greatest of all time. And I think it's easy to argue that, that Bolt is certainly the greatest sprinter of all time. But I want to talk about how he fits in the broader pantheon of runners across all events. Before we dive into that and bring Steve into the discussion, I wanted to first share a personal Usain Bolt story, which is that I went to the I had the privilege to go to the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, and by sheer luck, Amy and I, my wife and I, ended up on the tenth row. In the lower level, across directly across the track from the finish line during the 100-meter final when he broke the world record in Beijing. And we got completely lucky. We ended up picking up tickets sort of last minute because of a long story from the direct site. And we ended up 10th row right wow. on right down by the track for that event. Is that like the start of the 1,500-meter where the start of the 1,500-meter is? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we were straight across from where he would finish that race. And we had been to every every session of track and field while we were there, as I'm, you know, a fanatic on this stuff. And I drew, I forced Amy to come watch the, for example, 100 meter prelims. But this is where I really, that event generally is where I really understand the value of watching every preliminary round. Even in the hundred, where you have four rounds, and some of those first rounds are are kind of silly because you have a ton of people that really don't necessarily deserve to be there. But that's one of the events that gets a lot of people because every country can bring one athlete to one event. And so Bolt, we saw him in the first round, second round, third round, and then the final. And in the first round, he ran about sprinted about forty meters before he shut it down and jogged to the finish and then the second round was maybe 60 meters then about 80 meters and then we all saw him run in the final as well where he shut it down with about 10 meters to go well that final in the bird's nest 
it was a sold out venue. Everybody had really been waiting for Bolt to come out and do his thing. And there was obviously it's always the last race. It's of the last the night, race of the right? night. And there had been a lot of talk about him breaking the world record. He had looked really impressive in the prelim rounds, as I just mentioned. And so the track is packed. Everybody's buzzing. He comes out, does his thing where he gets, you know, he's so playful and fun. He gets the crowd involved with his dancing and stuff. So everybody was, all that anticipation was building. The, the event happens. And in a lot of ways, it's different than watching it on TV if you're there in person because, you know, you have, you have one vantage point versus the TV kind of gives you, you know, that close view the whole way. And it moves. And, and the it way moves the, with the camera him, right? moves with But him. when you're there, it doesn't move with it. You're just kind of watching and it happens so fast that you almost don't even know what's going on. But, you know, they ran the event. He obviously won. The crowd went crazy. He kept sprinting around the curve, ended up pretty close to where we were sitting as he was celebrating. And the crowd, of course, was going crazy. But then they showed the replay on the big screen. And about that same time, they flashed that he, that he did actually achieve the world record. So everybody saw that and went nuts again. But then they showed the replay on the big screen there. And and that's when we we all in person realized that he'd basically run 90 meters of the race, <laughs> shut it down, started celebrating and still set the world record. So for a very split second, as we all watched that, it got quiet as everybody's draw dropped in in awe of what he had just done and how easy it looked to set the world record. And so for a very split second, that stadium, which had been just a split second prior going absolutely nuts went deathly quiet for you know a beat just a heartbeat and then went crazy again and that single moment is probably the coolest moment in sports i've ever seen in person just that moment where you had a hundred thousand fans quiet in awe of this guy yeah it it shut the world world down yeah exactly (laughs) so that to me in person was really cool but if, if you go back obviously most people know bolt but they may not know some of the stats He's obviously the 100-meter and the 200-meter world record holder. And, but, but here's a stat for me that's most impressive. If you look at his, his results in championship meets, Olympics and world championships, from 2008 to 2016 in Rio across three Olympics and four world championships, seven major worldwide you know, championship events, he won 20 out of 21 gold medals across the 100 meter, 200 meter, and the 4 by one So basically he was 20 for 21 across those premier sprint championships. The only time he didn't win was in 2011 where he false started in the 100 final and got disqualified. Well, one of those officially has been taken away from him. True. But he but just, we can leave he that just lost the two. 2008 four by one correct because his teammate was busted for doping mm-hmm. but essentially he was the winner on 20 out of 21 championships correct. in nine straight years across seven global championships i mean that's unheard of in any event much less than the sprints and especially in the hundred where in a lot of ways it's sometimes a crapshoot yep and so let's talk about bolt's dominance where does he fit in the pantheon of great track and field athletes of all time. I mean, I think that if you if you take 
all categories, because the last time we talked about the goat, which is the greatest of all time, that's sort of our little, uh, the appellation that, that is t- uh, typically used. Um, we've talked about it in the context of, of distance runners, um, which that seems to be our, our main interests. But Chris and I are both track and field fans from everything, as we talked about before, from the javelin all the way yeah. through the vault to, uh, to the shot to, to the sprint. And I do think, as you laid it out there, as you lay that case out there, it's pretty hard not to see how much that domination in an, what I would call just about the hardest events to pull it off um, in because the the question of chance in a race that's only 10 seconds long, the, the number of things that can go wrong that will change everything is just exponentially greater than anywhere else. A, a mistimed start, um, uh, a not come from behind quite fast enough um, in the relay events. The domination that Jamaica has had in that four by one is just mind boggling. Um, I think some of that is the factor of the United States not getting, having the ability to get the freaking baton around the right. corner around it. I think we should have been as comp- that that records those records maybe not should be so sparkling if we actually knew right. how to get the baton around the track. But anyway, I do think that you're right that that as the greatest of all time in track and field, he's if not the greatest, right there. I don't I don't I can't conceive of anybody else better um just because of the number the sheer difficulty of pulling that those feats off in all those championship races yeah plus the other thing i think you have to throw in is his appeal as somebody who's brought more fans to the sport than maybe anybody ever because of his style his panache his confidence but also his playfulness He's just fun to watch. Especially at the crucial time where so many other parts of our sport are being lambasted and bashed by the media because of drugs and the, the over this the, the, the sheer focus on what quote unquote cheating is. Now I'm not trying to I don't want anybody to sit here and think that I think it's okay to dope. I'm not saying uh-huh. that. What I'm saying is that the fact that the dopers can take so much attention away from what's happening out on the track and Bolt is a huge bright spot and one that nearly everyone in the world um, ha- knows. I mean, he's probably the most recognized sporting person in the world. I would, yeah. I, I don't know who else you could say, even in, in, in football, that soccer, that there could be another person. Maybe Messi. Maybe Messi. Yeah. Right. So you bring up the doping. During his heyday, Bolt has seen lots of his competitors. <laughs> go out in attempts to try to match him between Gatlin and Gay and Blake and and so and of course there's Asafa Powell who's there's been speculation about so you've had others trying to compete with him that have potentially gone to dubious means and so people often ask me as someone who is a student of the sport and a student of doping in the sport do you think Bolt's clean and you know me, I'm a cynic. So most <laughs> of the time, if there's crazy performances happening, then I'm one to be skeptical. But Bolt's someone that I believe in 100% for a couple reasons. One, because if you look at his track record, he has performed at the level he performs now at every age group. He's set age group records from the earliest they start tracking that all the way to now. So he's done it with consistency no matter his age. And then the second is if you just look at the physics and there's some pretty good articles out there if you google search them on the physics of bolt running because he's six five 
and a lot of these other sprinters are 5'11 max, he's got five to six inches on most of the other major sprinters. And so he's taking, on average, 41 steps per 100 meters, whereas as his competitors on average are taking, are taking 44 to 45 steps. Hmm. So he's taking three to four fewer steps per 100 meters. And if you're able to do that with the same stride rate, you're going to win. And so he's got the physics on his side and the height and the geometry on his side as well that tells me that what we're seeing is real. He just happens to be a freak of nature. And then the third thing I point to is if you look at his coach and the group he's sort of associated with in Jamaica, it's always been above board. You've had some questionable things happening in Jamaican sprinting, but that's with other coaches, other groups. Well, Johan Blake did train with them and with him with him as a coach. They were they were a coach. For a little bit, yeah. Correct. Um, and so there are arguments about what was happening in 08 when all that happened. But I'm with you, Chris. I think that this is one of the clear, clear indications of being clean. Um, I, there's no proof. I do think it would be a death knell to our sport if he did come out as being doping because I think it's just – it would just really – it would either do one of two things. It would either be a death knell to people's interest in the sport or it would tell everybody would just say, forget about it like we do in cycling. Let it be what it is. It is what it is. I don't think there's a person who watches the Tour de France or watching watches cycling that thinks that, that there are very many clean or that there are very many people not cheating because of the things that are happening out there. But I'm with you. I mean, he's a freak. I mean, he's an absolute freak. And not only is he a freak physically, but he's a freak in the way that he approaches his game on race day, um, which is what made, has made his appeal so great within the whole world in terms of people watching him dance and have fun and, you know, do his his uh, his bolt move that yeah. he does at the end of it, the lightning bolt move. But that kind of a loose approach is one that um, is not very heavily present in any sporting event that well, especially in track and field. Track and field is definitely sort of the serious person sport in terms of not not joking and 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 jacking around. Maybe maybe the high jumpers do a little bit of that, um, but I mean even the decathlon, those guys are dead serious from start to finish. The fifteen hundred, there's there's not a lot of that super relaxed. People will put a smile on their face when you see the camera go by them as they're on the starting line, but they immediately shift to going back into game on mode and 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 Blake would be in that mode he probably did that when he was you know seven years old and you know racing in the dirt lots of of uh Jamaica doing whatever he did he's probably the same way so yeah I mean it's just uh we're gonna miss him when he's gone um I do want to make one point about his retirement he did say he was going to retire like after 2012 and he's he's made these statements before about when he was going to retire um i do think that as the most recognized person in the sport and one of the most recognized people in the world his 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 ability to create lucrative financial opportunities beyond the sport are probably as great and maybe even greater if he was able to be not in the serious training mode because we do we do know he likes to party yes okay last question before we turn to our main topic this has been the topic of debate on many a let's run.com message board which is that if bolt were to run the mile how would he do <laughs> <laughs> number one he wouldn't run the mile he, would. okay, he wouldn't is, want to certainly but he, some people <laughs> speculate can he break five in the mile is some of the speculation out there okay so just go and watch this is what i would ask you to do go and watch the decathlon 1500 meter you now to the to in bolt's favor is the decathlon one for 1500 meter is run after nine other events right. and these guys have to be able to throw a shot put but 
Those guys can break five. There's guys in that. There's guys there that can break five, and they do it tired, right? So right. yes, he can break five. I don't think there's any question that physiologically he can break five. But just like Trey Hardy in the decathlon, just because Trey Hardy can break five doesn't mean he's going to break five. <laughs> and if he doesn't have to break five to get what he wants, guess what? He's not gonna break five because he couldn't give two shits about right. that. So it's only the let's run pundits that are speculating too wildly about what Bolt might do. We can't even get Bolt to run 400 meters on a 4 by 4 to speak nothing yes. about this idea of I'm running a 1500 or a mile. And he used to run a lot of four, 400s growing up, actually. I was looking at the history on that. Yeah, his coach made him do that. His coach changed, you know, and when he switched to Glenn Mills, who was his coach in 2004, his coach thought he would be a 400 meter runner. In fact, he wanted him to move to that event, but Bolt did not have any interest whatsoever um i think you want to talk about an easy way for bolt to have expanded his his medal count i mean because jamaica is always right there but they just have always missed that that final they needed one more leg they just they're where they're dominant in the four by one they're not so dominant in the four by four and that guy could have run scratch leg of the leadoff leg in a way that would just put the race in a completely different place you could just thinking about the places you could put him on a four by four is really intriguing about where you might put him in the placement on that four because track those of you who don't know track and field very well in the four by four where you position as well as a four by one the person that you have in the position you have them in is really critical and it could be that the same four people juggled in different spots for 400 meters could completely change the way that the race goes down and um, I had the benefit of being mentor having a mentor in Bev Kearney who is the absolute in my opinion one of the greatest 400 meter coaches in the world and certainly one of the most amazing 400 meter four by four coaches in the world always knowing how to get those kids up and have them positioned in just the right place taking their strengths and weaknesses into account so I would I would maybe we'll get that at this world championship maybe there'll be a chance that he'll 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 pop out a four by four if he does I'll go I'll just it'll I'll just die because I'll be so happy I would suggest if Bolt were listening that if he was thinking about spicing up his nitro events, if he were to run the elimination mile. Oh, that, yeah, that, there that we go. Now I would watch. <laughs> A whole lot of people would, would watch. Yeah. Instead of just standing there on the sidelines, you know, wait, clapping <laughs> yes. them on, as we saw in the last one. All right. So with that, uh, we say farewell to Bolt after London. We will definitely miss him, and the sport will miss him. There will be a big gap, as we mentioned, with Ashton Eaton on who will take that ball and run with it so to speak as the next big track and field star we're going to move into our main topic today where we're again we're following up on our series on training principles as i said at the top we started with our episode one where we talked about our five principles for training and how that fits into our programming then we followed that up with episode seven where we talked about the first principle which is that miles matter and getting that volume is really important Today we're going to talk about principles two and three. Number two is the importance of feeling-based training. And number three is basically that every day has a purpose and that you need to modulate your efforts from day to day in order to get an optimal result. So we're going to walk through the details on both of those, starting with the second here on feeling-based training. And so what this comes down to if you put it simply, Steve, is listening to your body. So explain what that means. So listening to your body um, is, as as in the parlance that we've heard people talk about before, something can be very simple but not very easy. And uh, listening to your body is certainly something that requires a lot of practice. Um, 
you know, I like to think about this kind of in the sense of, even though this analogy isn't exactly right, um, some of those science people among us who, who get these things better than I do, uh, this idea of homeostasis um, versus equilibrium and like the idea of homeostasis being looking at the entire internal system, like what's going on entirely within the system. And equilibrium is sort of like trying to figure out all the little different pieces and parts of the body that are going on within balance and how those are balanced out. In my mind, this isn't, a, this isn't homeostasis versus equilibrium. More, it's how can you keep balance or that equilibrium within the overall the overall system of the body. And so um, it's really critical, in my opinion, the most critical is getting this balance right. And that has to be filtered through the most important lens, which is personal experience. Because what I think might be um, easy or hard or what I think my body may be able to do or not be able to do or what my body is indicating to me is difficult might be very different for where you're at in your positioning. And also, it might it will always vary based on the objectives in a workout, the objectives on a run. The, there's so many different variables that can get played in here. But what is very, very simple is that you have to actually pay attention to the information that's going on that's physiological information from your toes all the way up to the top of your head and also what's going on between one ear and the other ear in terms of the way that you're feeling those feelings and exhibiting those those um bodily uh feedback loops correct and you know in essence the other thing that's really important is to remember you can also replace the word feeling here feeling based training with effort based training we're going to get into a lot more of that later but for those people who are a little bit weirded out by the touchy-feely idea of feeling-based, you can also just substitute effort in there if you want to as we continue to, to discuss. Yeah, so. we're talking about efforts, not emotions, so Correct. To speak. Exactly. <laughs> but the overarching point here is that a lot of times we tra- think of training in terms of paces. You know, you, you think about workouts as I should do X number of miles at marathon pace, half marathon pace, 10K pace, 5K pace. We're often talking about workouts and runs in terms of paces how fast you're going but the main thing we're trying to convey here is that those paces don't actually matter that much what matters is your efforts because efforts and having sustained work at different effort levels and we'll talk about what the different effort levels are those efforts are what are actually helping you adapt and 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 work through and improve it's not the paces that are important. It's the efforts. And so the ability for you as an individual over time to understand what efforts are appropriate to get what benefit from an aerobic development or anaerobic development standpoint, that's what's important. And that's why this is really hard because it's going to vary, as you said, depending on the workout, the time frame, an individual versus another individual. But it's also going to vary based on that person's stimuli from the day how much they slept how much stress they're under how they're feeling generally whether their legs are maybe tired from a strength workout or something the day before and so there's lots of things that might cause those paces to change when the efforts might be the same and it takes a mature athlete to understand how to read that and as you said listening to your body so with that as context, let's talk a little bit about energy systems. And, you know, if there's a lot of training liter- literature out there about 
what you know and terminology that and that we're going to try to demystify here for you today so when when people talk about aerobic and anaerobic and and threshold work what is the, what do those things mean so give us the breakdown steve on what are the four basic energy systems and some of the terminology that are associated with efforts people are trying to achieve when they're training cool so let's <clears throat> let's first start with a really generic situation of just making sure that people understand when we talk about efforts a difference there when we people people will talk frequently about things being easy or being hard so easy versus hard is a sort of very generic overarching idea that's really important for people to pay attention to and as you alluded to chris what's happening in your day-to-day life is so essential in terms of determining what those easy versus hard efforts are in terms of a general generic statement Okay, moving there, moving very quickly to what Chris just asked me, which is what are the four basic energy systems? This is a very specific, these are very specific things. Um, I'm going to run through them really quickly. Those of you who have a pen and paper, you want to jot them down, you can. If not, you can listen to it repeatedly. It doesn't really matter. But basically, we're talking number one. And these, two, these four energy systems fall into two categories. Those energy systems that are energy requiring or using oxygen so they'll be called aerobic, and those energy systems that are get creating energy without oxygen, which means lactic acid or the byproducts of trying to create oxygen but not having enough oxygen in the system to do so, begin to create byproducts that actually recreate lactic acid. So energy with oxygen, energy without oxygen. The energy with oxygen ones are aerobic conditioning and Aerobic conditioning is really simple. Your easy runs, your recovery runs, your long runs, even long run workouts, even steady state runs in the sense of steady state running being sort of really effort-based, long running or medium long running. Sometimes we do in our workouts, I'll say, I want everybody to go out for a 10-mile run today, but I want it to be steady. And steady means comfortable. And so you you can run as fast as you want to run as long as you're staying in that comfortable zone. But aerobic conditioning means that we are not we only time the only way we're going to accumulate lactic acid or get into a position where we cr- cross over a lactic threshold is if we go for so long that we run out of fuel and we don't have enough glycogen fuel to actually fuel what we're doing. So staying consistent with easy, easy, easy is pretty much where you're at with aerobic with a little bit of fast running, a little bit of long run workouts, but the long run workouts aren't at paces that if you did very short bouts of that would be difficult at all. The next category is what we call aerobic power. Other folks call it aerobic capacity, maybe even aerobic strength, but it is different from conditioning. Conditioning is getting fitter at it. The power, the capacity, and the strength element means that you're actually doing what we would more commonly call interval work. So this is where the zone of VO2 max comes into play when people talk about the utilization or the uptake of oxygen in workouts. So VO2 max workouts, these are workouts that are in a pace zone somewhere between 5K pace all the way up to 10K pace generally. Um, They're typically intervals, they're typically repetitions, and they're usually those intervals are sitting at a recovery zone when you do your easy recovery at about equal to the time that you ran. So if you're doing 800 meter repeats in three minutes, you'll get a three minute recovery. If you're doing um, 400 meter repeats in nine in, in 80 seconds, you're getting an 80 second recovery. If you're doing five minute bouts, you're getting five minutes of recovery because it's supposed to be equal to be sure that you get completely recovered. And we're really not trying to get your body any better at utilizing lactic 
energy. We're really trying to get you better at creating as much oxygen as possible to keep that from happening. So those are the first two aerobic ones, the ones that we use with energy. And the other two are the energy without oxygen. And for many of our listeners, these are a significantly less utilized part of our training methodologies, but 400-meter runners, 800-meter runners, 1,500-meter runners, they use these systems far more. In our system at Rogue, we use them a little bit to make sure that we work on our efficiency and our economy and some other things, but we are not spending a lot of time working on immediately getting into a lactate state. We're doing more of this aerobic stuff where our lactate gets developed after we've been running for a considerable period of time. So these workouts, these two categories are anaerobic conditioning, higher volumes or shorter intervals, done at basically 3K to five, to one mile pace, and they're usually done with a pretty short rest, you know? So this might be a workout like people do 10 times 400 at your mile pace. It's a very, 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 very common workout that people do that way. Um, and then in the other zone is anaerobic power, which our listeners, most people who are half marathon and marathon focused, they do almost absolutely none of this. In my cycling, I do it once every once in a while just to add, throw a little spice in there to make sure people know how to buffer lactic acid but that's like getting seriously into lactate distress and this is anaerobic power it is super anaerobic you know bleeding out of your ears tasting pennies if you, those of you who have done fast hard hill repeats you're definitely getting into that sort of lactic power energy zone so those are your four x energy systems aerobic conditioning aerobic power those are using oxygen, and then the ones not using oxygen are anaerobic conditioning and anaerobic power. So when we talk about those four, you know, most people that might be listening are probably half marathon to marathon training, maybe 5K, 10K. And so I sort of think of these inter- energy systems similar to muscles in the body, like your aerobic system. Or your sorry, your your musculoskeletal system has different parts, different muscles, your quads, your biceps, your pecs, those sorts of things, and your aerobic system has different muscles too. And so when we think about those different energy systems, they're kind of like different muscles within your aerobic toolkit, from aerobic capacity to aerobic conditioning, and and so forth. So, but for most people that are doing long distance training they're going to be focusing on the first two, right? Because that's where we're developing all those physiological elements we talked about in episode seven, where you're adding mitochondria to your cell, you're adding capillaries to your muscles, you're improving your blood's ability to carry oxygen, your lungs' ability to process it, and so forth. And let's remember that we discussed also that many people, as we start out, why we talked about Miles Matter, they're aerobic babies. So they need to spend so much time in that zone because they are not... They don't, they're, they're not getting that oxygen in the way that you're talking about to those muscles appropriately, and you have to practice it to do it. Yep. And the other thing is the anaerobic work can be really stressful oh, yes. on your musculoskeletal oh, yes. system, so a lot of people get injured. And as we talked about, injury is, a, is something that prevents the consistency and the mileage that you want, so that's the reason why we don't do a lot of it. But going back to those four systems, if you were to – just for the purposes of translating into efforts, if you were to translate those systems into percentages, kind of percentage of effort, what would what would they translate to? Okay, so <clears throat> this is where the rubber meets the road, right? So you can talk about all that I talked about before. Most of you probably snoozed through it because it was pretty technical, but this is the real this is the real scoop. All right, so basically, your 
time spent running really easy running, right, which is what we would call an easy run or a long run pace, I would call what we call rate of perceived effort, which is how we almost all of us basically decide how hard we're working. Most of us will be in that 50 to 60%. And so the aerobic conditioning zone encapsulates that, but it also encapsulates the next two zones as well, really. And those are basically the aerobic, you know, the aerobic threshold and the anaerobic threshold or some what some people call the lactate threshold and that's happening at 70 percent effort all the way down i mean 80 percent effort all the way down to 60 percent so technically if you want to stay in that first aerobic conditioning zone it's basically from 60 percent or almost as easy as you can go because really walking out the door puts you at about 30 percent getting about a mile to two miles in gets you to about 40 to 50 percent and any distance over 30 minutes to 45 minutes is getting you right into that 60 60 percent effort zone in terms of the way I would look at that you know if you go to the doctor they ask you your pain threshold and everybody's got different pain thresholds but guys and girls we can figure this out right this is pretty simple stuff you would say that's 60 percent effort just to get to the point where you're running 30 to 45 minutes so but but you can go all the way up to 80%, which is probably 80% of the training that we do at Rogue because we have so many marathoners that we're spending a huge, considerable amount of time in that zone. Now, it's really important to make, to, to make this clear that while, especially on your long, long, hard workouts, they'll move into the next energy, they'll move into the next energy zone because of the duration. So if you go for longer than two hours at a certain effort or 90 minutes at a certain effort, I mean, at a certain lactate threshold or different energy zone, your effort will increase just because of the difficulty of going for that long. So it's important to realize that while you haven't changed energy zone, you may have changed energy. You may have changed your effort zone, and that effort will be affected that way. Um, once you get into the zone, get to the aerobic power zone. That is really between eighty and ninety percent of your of your of your of your maximum effort, or your maximum perceived effort, um, and that zone is really what we're doing when we're doing a lot of our interval work. Most of the interval work that people are doing, if they're doing 800-meter repeats, if they're doing 1,000-meter repeats, if they're doing, you know, we do a workout, we do three times 5K, we, we move and we mix some of those zones. But basically, that is in that aerobic power zone is up to um, 90%. Once you get from 90% to 100, you're starting to move into that anaerobic capacity, that anaerobic conditioning zone where you're accumulating so much you're beginning to accumulate more glycogen, more lactic acid from the sugars burning off that you can than you can deal with. And so from that point, you're now moving into the anaerobic conditioning zone, and you're at you know 90 to 100 percent. The last zone where we almost never get, which is anaerobic power. I mean, that's 100 plus. Like you are all out. As I said, you are in lactic distress. You are you are you are having a tough tough time. So. For our purposes, when we talk about effort-based training and, and, and feeling-based training, really what we're talking about is understanding these basic concepts and how they fit into the training zone that you're doing. Because as Chris said, it's really important not to be a slave to your training zone or to your specific paces, but you also have to work it within a context of them and have, an, have, a, have a range within them in order to effectively train. As I say to many people, if you are not able to run at the paces on a given day that we have given for you, then you should probably stop the workout, go home and go back to sleep <laughs> or save it for another day because you're not able to get into the place that you need to be. 
that's important from a training perspective, but also from an, from an understanding your body's insights and, the, and, and what's going on. Now, I want to make something really, really crystal clear. I had a great example of this today. One of the athletes that we had many athletes doing this, this really simple, basic workout today. It was four to five times their one mile, four to five times one mile at their half marathon goal pace, which basically is a true tempo, what we call a tempo workout. I had two minutes recovery, which was probably a little bit longer than I normally give people, but I wanted to make sure that they tried to stay in that zone. And what I told people was, don't go any faster than this zone. But what I did tell people when they started the workout was, it should feel very easy. And if in the first three reps, this is not very easy with that amount of recovery, then come talk to me. And the reason I said that I didn't say anything more about it, I didn't carry on about it, but I had four or five athletes come to me, man, I, I don't understand. I'm really tired. And I was able to go back and say, how did you sleep? How have you been eating? What's going on with you sensorily? I said, this is a workout that should be in a zone, effort zone of 70 to 80%. And you're describing 90 to 95% efforts. And they were like, yes, I am. And I said, well, <laughs> put, your, get, you know, put on your coat, go back to Rogue. You need to get back and get easy. You, you're, you're not getting... You're, that, that energy system that we're trying to tap is not being appropriately tapped. We're not able to mine it for all the things that we need to mine it for. So stop and take a rest. And if those athletes at that moment will take the chant time to say, this is the good thing. This is a wonderful thing. And I try to be as positive as I can about it. But as, a, as, as, as our Western-based American ways of thinking, we think we failed. And I try to make it the happiest, most amazing thing. Go back and take an extra nap, you know. But I understand it. People do not naturally, they're not naturally predisposed to doing this feeling-based training, effort-based training. And guys, we're talking about this because our, our second most important training principle is not running at specific paces. We understand them to be critical and crucial and very important, but it is way less important than running on effort and running based on feel. And that should be the primary goal, not running in zones. And if you're, and if you're not, then you're wasting your time. <laughs> it's a waste of time. Go back waste. home and go to bed. Yes, and that is so hard for people to understand. You know. Yeah. So now you you were talking about aerobic conditioning. You used some terms there that I think sometimes vary depending on the context, but. We at Rogue use a couple of terms, steady being one of them as a term that describes efforts within the context of aerobic conditioning. Tempo is another one. Translate those two words for me for people. Sure. So basically what we're talking about is what would be generically called threshold, right? Which is another one of those terms. So you got threshold, you've got steady, you've got tempo. What the heck are we talking about, right? So let's start with the overarching category, which is threshold. So that's either lactate threshold, which is really simple. It's the aerobic fitness or the current aerobic development that you have and your body's ability to remove lactate when it starts to accumulate in your body. So it's a kind of a really scientific threshold. It's right on a spot, right? And some people will call aerobic threshold. What's that? Don't worry about that. Leave it alone. Don't even think about it. Just call threshold literally that scientifically based half marathon pace centered. And that is also equal to what we call tempo. So those two things are the same. When you talk about threshold, you should be running basically your half marathon pace or within 10 seconds on either end of it maximum. That's a tempo. That's a threshold run. A steady run is something completely different, even though you may be running exactly the same paces. All right. Did you catch that? <laughs> something completely different, but running at the same paces. That means that you're just purely running a workout based on the way you feel. 
And you have, maybe you start out with a relative range of paces. With my athletes, I really like it when they don't pay attention to paces at all. But it should be in a place that we call comfortably hard. Hard enough to be doing work, comfortable enough to be comfortable. If it moves too too far into the range of hard, you're starting to get into what we would call tempo work or lactate threshold work. If it goes too easy, guess what? You're doing a long, slow, easy run or a long run. It's not in that same space. But the, the, the steady run is the most beautiful thing in the world because it takes the pressure off of people. It allows them to focus on what's going on internally and allows them to then say, I'm going to run on what it is today. As Chris, as you've heard me quote, <laughs> quoted to say many times, steady is as steady does. Um, that's sort of an, a, a steal from from uh, Mr. Gump there. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's basically be making sure that on that given day, you're just doing what the body is telling you to do. But it is still in sort of that same arguable zone of what we would call a tempo run or a latte threshold run, but you're not focused on the paces. And that's a clear delineation here between what we're talking about. Pace-based work, very strict pace-based work, which is a lot of what 90% of people out there running are doing. And effort-based work, which is about 10% of the people that are running. And those people that are doing effort-based running, they are beating you at races. <laughs> guaranteed. Um, it is a guaranteed way to be better is to do more of that kind of work so you can start to get that internal clock telling you the information you really need to know. The steady run is powerful because it teaches you how to run by effort. It teaches you how to modulate that effort depending on how you're feeling. And in a lot of ways, it can teach you how to dial into pace too, because oftentimes when I'll do it, I won't look at my watch during the run, but then afterwards I'll look back to see what paces I was hitting and I'm able to calibrate how I was feeling with the pace outputs from my watch to kind of figure out, you know, how I can dial in when I need to be more specific with my paces. So with that kind of teeing up the next part of this discussion, Let's talk about technology and how that can be a tool. And we've talked about before, you shouldn't be a slave to your Garmin. But at the same time, it's a valuable tool that you can use. Or a heart rate monitor is another valuable tool you can use to help you calibrate yourself when it comes to efforts. But you have to be very careful about how you use it. So what do you think there? So it's called dialing it in. I mean, you you have to dial all this information in, all this, 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 physiological gobbledygook speak with real effort-based work. And nothing, there has been no greater gift to a runner than getting these this technology. And technologically enhancing your training is, in my mindset, one of the most singular, most amazing changes for people. When I started running, when I was doing training, when I was getting fit and running at a high level, I did not have this. I was basing everything on effort, which made me a great effort-based runner, but I very, I didn't, I very frequently probably tipped over and into um, not listening effectively and into, hence into overtraining. Um, this technology, or I like to call the geekometer, because pretty much everybody geeks out on that information when they see it. They upload it to Strava, they look at it on their spreadsheets, they go crazy with it. It should be utilized post-run. And in my opinion, almost exclusively post-run. I think that people who utilize their their technology resources in the run begin to become slaves. And being a slave to technology is, to me, one of the most 
it, the one of the greatest things, one of the greatest gifts to runners has turned into one of the absolute worst things that could ever be because a tool is taken and instead of taking that tool and using it where it's supposed to be, you're taking the tool and turning it to another end. It's like taking a crowbar, which is used to remove things from the wall or to push things in and out of places and to be a tool. And now you're taking the crowbar and hitting somebody over the head with it. Like it's, yeah, it's easy to murder with a crowbar, <laughs> but it's not the intended purpose of that tool. The intended purpose of that tool is to utilize it for what it's supposed to be. It is dialing in what's going on. So use your geekometer out on the roads, out on the trails, but don't really look at it so much. And then take that information, all you, you technologically enhanced <laughs> people, take that information and base your basic efforts and then dial them in with what was actually happening. And very quickly, very quickly, you will become really an advanced level runner if you're willing to do that. I would say the best suggestion I had, single best suggestion I could have for any runner anywhere is to have a have a geekometer, have it running for all your workouts. Look at that information after you run, and then in a race, you can actually use your Garmin or your, or or that or that technology to help you in a race because you will already have an inherent trust in what's going on. And Chris, this is the key thing: these gadgets are making us distrust our own internal rhythms and our own internal way of running. And this is the gift that running is in the first place. It's supposed to be the not, not technologically advanced. You don't have to have just the right skis and the bike seat sitting in just the right spot and your angle, bar, your bar sitting in it. This is, it's all about just running free. And yet people are not running free. They're running as slaves to this device. Yeah. I just sent an email to my group today as we're transitioning into a new training mode we're kind of going into this reset, so to speak, we're recalibrating, probably coming off a big fitness peak and you tend to dip a little bit when that happens. And so I encourage them during this next four to six weeks as we move to sort of reset the body and, and start to rebuild their fitness from the ground again to not go to take off their watches periodically because there's something that happens magic happens when suddenly you don't have something on your wrist you do dial into a slightly different approach to running and so i do think occasionally that's important too but I agree with you post run take a look at it i've used it in the past also over time to look at the same workouts i've done a couple of times and calibrate across those workouts because i can remember how i felt on both days and i might also know the weather maybe the course was slightly different and I can sort of calibrate between the two. You know, maybe I felt worse on one day, but then I look back and I see the weather was warmer and the hillier, the course we were on was hillier. So it sort of made sense that it's probably the same output I was giving out, but there were other variables that were, that were at play that made me feel differently. And so those are the other two things I would say is one, just go without it. And then two, reiterating your point about using it after the fact so as we wrap this and then move to our next, I want to also give people some practical things to take with them if they, if they don't train with us. If you train with us, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of this. Although some of you may not you know, think about it that way because oftentimes we are talking about paces when we really mean efforts. How can someone practically apply these things? And one thing I would say on that is if you have a coach 
and they give you a workout with pace descriptions, ask them the question simply, how should I feel during this workout? And get a description of that so you can calibrate that with what they've told you from a pace perspective. But what other tips would you have, Steve? Um, <clears throat> yes, checking in is important. Um, also, one of the things that I love to do is I will give the athletes two basic start points when we talk about paces so that they will help them start to dial in better to efforts. And what I ask them to do is to take their marathon time that they just ran or they ran recently and go onto a calculator and find out the equivalency paces for your 5K, your 10K, your half marathon, and your marathon. You can go to any site. I love McMillan. There's a shout out to my bud, Greg McMillan. He has the greatest one in the world. Use that one or any other one you can find. But get your equivalencies for, let's say you ran a 310 marathon and that's your goal. Right, that's what you did. That's what you accomplished. That's what you had got done. And if you want to get all fancy about it and put in, you know, the exact time to the second that you did do that, that's where you've been. And you need to have been there recently. Okay, this is not for just brand new starting runners. This is for folks who have been in a marathon training mode. And then go and say, okay, plug in your goal time. So now I want to run three hours. Let's just use that as an example. So you've got a 310 pace, you've got a three-hour pace. Now you've got go down and write all the equivalency paces for 5K to 10K to half marathon to marathon with those. They all fall into these physiological training systems that we talked about. And then on any given day, run between your two paces. If you're feeling good, run down to but no faster than the goal paces that you have written. If you're feeling terrible, run no slower than the paces that you've got written on your 310 time. Why? Because if you're going slower than that, you're probably not getting into the zone that you need to be in. You probably need to take an easy run. So that's a real practical way to take and then take to take these pace things that we talk about consistently and plug them into effort bases. And then the best thing about that, the thing you need to do is then write down what that effort was on that given day. And if you can do that and you can start to get really good with your efforts, and these efforts should range from 5 to 10. There is no harder effort than 10, and there is no lower effort after 30 minutes of running than 5, right? So use that number and just plug in where it was. And over time, if you keep a training log and you go back and you look at your training log, you're going to see this day I ran it this way. What were all the reasons? Now all the variables become really crystal clear as to why you didn't get it done that day. You know, the other day we had a day where the weather was like like 75 degrees. This is February in Texas, folks. It's like 75 degrees at 530 in the morning with like 95% humidity and it's not raining. Like that is freaking miserable if you're in the winter and you're not expecting it. And your body's not ready for it. And people were doing critical velocity work, which is exactly your 15K pace. And they were falling to pieces. They were having a hard time managing it and getting it done. Guess what? That day means that even the effort and the weather the weather that happened on that day changed the efforts and so the paces are not so important having a wider range and a bit of a range there gives you a great chance to have bad days and still feel like you're getting something done and when you have good days you've got a guarantee that you try to have a guarantee that you don't go any faster okay the other reason as we segue to our third training principle which is every day has a purpose the other reason these efforts are important is because when a coach tells you to do a workout at a certain paces they really mean certain efforts. And the reason they're telling you that is because they're fitting together the puzzle of your fitness by cobbling together, working on these different muscle systems within your aerobic system in a way to build you towards a peak result. So they're doing it 
because every day within a week, with every day within a training cycle, every day within the context of your overall development has a purpose. And if you run outside of those efforts on those days, then you're defeating the purpose. You're, you're destroying the building block of the pyramid that is to your peak fitness. And so let's discuss now this third principle, which is that every day has a purpose. So there's certain efforts we're trying to run, and we're starting to run those certain efforts on certain days in order to build you towards a peak in your training. Now, at the very basic level, we will say that you have to run your easy days easy and your hard days hard. <laughs> those are two very generic terms, but it means you have to modulate. You have to run certain days easy, certain days hard. But talk about that generally, that general principle, and then we'll drill into the more specifics of what a week might look like and what a microcycle might look like. Well, super. What's really interesting about that is that basically we are transitioning effort-based training right into um, every day has a purpose with this discussion because generically from the outset at the highest meta level at the at the biggest picture piece, we're talking about everything having its right place everything having its reason for being done and reason for doing. And if you're able to listen to your body and pay attention to the, the, the sort of biorhythms and all the things that are going on within yourself and you're doing them within a well-planned out, what I'll call periodized cycle, then you're actually taking those two, these two concepts, our second most important concept, which is based effort-based or feeling-based training, and this every, every day has a purpose and bringing them together in a really, really simple way of understanding and so that idea basically is to take is this whole concept is basically what we all will call periodization so periodization is having a reason for doing a workout and that reason checking a physiological box off checking an effort-based box off or checking whatever based box whatever needs to get done um if you're self-coached you know, this is one of the hardest things to do. And it's certainly one of the things that makes started people's starting line experiences very difficult when they're self-coached because they don't have this sort of built-in, inbred confidence that what they've done is appropriate or 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 that they're ready for the effort they're about to put in. I've recently, over the last two or three years, begun to pick up in my own coaching um, a number of formerly self-coached athletes. And we've had differing levels of success with all of them. But the biggest part of why we're having levels of differing levels of success is those folks who are willing to take the effort-based training and plug it into my overarching basic periodized reason for why we're doing each workout. And they do that effectively. They, they, they usually have a, everybody has a, about a six month to nine month <laughs> problem window. But within that, they really do those, they really mesh in and they get it perfect. And they, they appreciate that now we have an overall arching plan, but they're still the masters of their own domain. They're still the ones that are deciding whatever effort is important. So they get to have all those wonderful aspects of being a self-coached athlete, but they have somebody else making the decisions so that when they stand on a starting line, they feel good about it. On the flip side, those folks who don't do that, they actually shift it around and they take all the pressure off of themselves listening to their own bodies and they seem to think that the numbers and the, and the numbers and the times and all those things are the absolute most important part. And then they question all the workouts that we've <laughs> written because they don't seem to line up with the thing they're ignoring, which is their effort-based training. So 
I think that one of the reason I bring all that up is basically saying that these two things really are interconnected and understanding why you're doing workouts and how that works is so important. If you're coached, it just lets you have confidence in what you're doing. If you're coached by yourself, then it, this the stuff that we're talking about next could be some of the most important things that we'll ever that we'll talk about because you guys have got to start to understand not so much all the energy systems that's what that's what all the books and the magazines and everybody's are talking about right what we're getting ready to talk about now is everything in its right place or why you're doing a workout and why every workout matters and what mat, knowing what you're doing in it matters is so important if you can learn this part you're going and you can balance that with everybody's training you're going to be in a really good spot so it's also another way that we put this is, you know, it's stress and then rest. You know, a lot of people get it in the context of strength training. So you stress the muscles, you tear them down so they can rebuild themselves stronger. We're essentially doing the same thing with our aerobic system and our anaerobic system as we do training is you're stressing the system to make it do work and then kind of tear it down a little bit in the context of that work and then build back stronger through rest and recovery. And if you're not balancing those two things right within the context of a week, much less a training cycle, then you're not ever building, you're only tearing down. So in the context of my groups, which is less advanced than yours, I generally tell people there's sort of four different types of runs within a week. And you might be doing four total, you might be doing six or seven total, but they'll all fit into one of these four categories. The slowest, the easiest is a recovery run, which comes after either a hard workout or a long run, where your most important thing is movement and blood flow to help the muscles clear out the waste from the previous day's work and you're running your easiest miles those days you're also getting aerobic benefit but it comes in the easiest end of that range then there's so that's recovery runs easy runs which are going to be sort of your other filler runs oftentimes we advise people do a medium long run where they're running not quite as long as their long run maybe half that distance but it's longer than most of their other easy days. And so you're sort of doing it that at easy pace. So there's easy days where you're just getting in the work without stressing your body. Then there's workout days where you're doing specific work. And one of the things that Rogue, we typically, for most of our athletes, only do one of those a week. A lot of programs have a two-workout cycle. Really, only our most advanced Team Rogue athletes do that. So only one workout a week because we are prioritizing all that easy aerobic work, you know, four to six days a week, and then one workout uh, in the context of that. Because miles matter. Miles matter. <laughs> and so there's a workout, and then the fourth type is your long run, where you're going, you know, maybe 20 to 30, 40% of your weekly mileage in one run, depending on your total mileage, to get that long aerobic effort in. So that's how I break it down. Any thoughts there on the composition of a week, Steve? Well, I think the most important thing to do is the reason we come up with ideas of composition of weeks is because we're all stuck into a seven-day cycle. So um, the seven-day cycle by itself is sort of a, a, a really challenging aspect of anybody trying to create programming because you're going to create certain that because people will want to be creatures of habit and people want to do the same thing on a Monday and the same thing on a Tuesday. And we do our quality workouts on a given day. And then we do our long run on a given day, which then creates two days gone. If you get one day off, which a lot of people do now you're at three days, you know, four more days to run to figure out 
where to get anything else that you have to get in. And so it's important to, at that point in time, you know, it, it, it's, that's why I'm always much more, I'm much happier talking about what we call microcycles, which is, you know, a longer period of time. But basically those four, those four areas are exactly everything that you're doing with 50%. But basically, if we go back to our other conversation about what's going on in energy systems, that means of those four, you know, 25, 25, 25, 25, 75% of the kind of work we're doing is all in that aerobic conditioning zone and maybe much of what we're even doing on the quality maybe in that, over, yep. over that, in that same zone. But basically, those it's the best way to think about it because if you don't consider your recovery day a recovery day, then you won't take it as such. Um, if you don't think of your easy run as helping you and as an advantage point, it's something that's going to make you better then it's that's it it's it's not a good thing if you everybody knows that their quality day is going to be good for them and everybody knows that their long run day is going to be good for them um probably the most important thing you talked about in there is that sort of easy day that we call a medium long run my group doesn't do the medium long run so much because we do two quality workouts in a week or we do another long 10ish to 12ish mile run on a consistent basis but Probably one of the things that separates Rogue from many, many other programming that are out there is that real insistence on the medium long run. We write it into every single schedule that we write in for all of our all of our athletes because it's the extra benefit day. And if they're willing to take the time and energy to get it in, sitting in that energy zone and sitting in that space for that extended period of time can be hugely can be a huge advantage. Watching and, watching my athletes, the difference between the ones that hit their goals and the ones that don't are the ones that do their medium long days because it's easy to do your long run when you have from here 200 to 400 people going with you. It's easy to show up on Wednesdays for my group and do your workout because you've got 50 people to do it with. It's hard to get in those medium long days on Mondays for my group on your own, but those that do it and do it consistently, that makes a difference because you're getting it's sort of those 10 mile, you know, for marathoners, 10 mile runs, eight mile runs, maybe for half marathoners. That's where the butter is made. <laughs> you know, that's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. That's so true. And getting a steady diet of those in consistently week to week to week. That's when you see people have breakthroughs. It's not the sexy day at all. It's not the day everybody shows up. It's the, it's the miles you're doing on your own on a Monday at easy paces, nothing fast, nothing flashy. But that simple aerobic work done consistently over time will make the difference between hitting a goal or not. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about this in our mental training things that we'll be talking about later. But one of the things I talk about all the time is being resilient, and that's resilience. That is the, the recognition that you have a job to do. And if you want the goal that you want, you have to do the dirty work. Um, you want a clean house, you got to clean a toilet. And sometimes the long run, the medium long run feels like that's that day. Um, yeah, we... We're, we make it a lot easier in Team Rogue because that medium long run is pretty much just buried in their in in the cycle, whether they know it or not. Yep. Um, but but for everybody else, my goodness, that's that that makes it is it is physiologically and from a training perspective immensely important. I don't want to diminish the, the physical value of it, but the but the mental value of it could even be greater, which is pretty amazing. So. That's sort of easy, hard principle, as we said, about 75 to even 85 percent of your running should be at easy paces, easy miles to build that aerobic foundation. Then we go into thinking about training cycles. You talked about microcycles already, but a series of microcycles 
build into a macro cycle, which might be a five to six month training block where someone's gearing up for a specific race. How are those macro cycles constructed? Because during each of those months, we're doing a little bit of different work, especially from a quality standpoint, in order to build to the peak for race day. So it's all based on a periodization schedule, and periodization is basically planning out those different energy systems, those different effort-based systems that you need to plug into your training in a way on the front end that allows you to stay focused and intent on getting the job done and being sure that you're well, you're balanced in all the varying things that you do. So let's build from the—you just asked a question building from the meta to the micro. I'm going to build it the opposite. I'm going to go from the micro to the meta because sometimes I think it's easier to think that way. Number one, think of a seven-day cycle as pretty arbitrary. So the only reason we even work in seven-day cycles and a week cycle is because that's the way our society is built. That's the way our jobs are built. That's the way our recovery days are built. That's, that's how everything is built. So I don't stray from that. If I could, I would. Many, many of the most elite coaches in the world do not even use seven days as their cycle. They are frequently in 10-day, 14-day. And the 14 isn't because there's two seven days. It's much more about what's going on in their micro cycles. So that micro cycle is basically... The time between your first hard day, first day of a hard training cycle and the last day of an easy week. So again, we use weeks because it's much easier to do. So we do 21 day microcycles at Rogue and many, many people do this. That means two weeks of what we would call hard work with a one week drop. So many people who look and say, what's a drop-down week? Well, the drop-down week is an ability to ensure that the macro does not overwhelm the micro. It's also to ensure that the micro doesn't become more important than the macro. And so what you're doing there is guaranteeing or, in, or in, inserting rest and recovery and recuperation time to get the super compensatory, the super compensation that happens when you work hard and then you get a rest. And you work hard and you get a rest. When we talk easy days easy, hard days hard, that's relevant. What's more relevant is hard weeks hard, Easy weeks, easy, because that's where really the, the, the things are getting done. And so in that cycle, there's a lot of easy runs. In, an easy, in a hard week, in a hard 21-day cycle, the majority of things that are being done are easy-paced easy paced running. But the key sessions in those macro, micro cycles, those key workouts, are designed around every micro cycle fitting into a bigger picture. So I'm now going to go to the macro from the micro. The micro is most important is being sure that you've got, you've got your quality days, you've got your long runs, but you've got a down week every two, every three weeks, every two weeks, depending on how you do it. Some people even do it every fourth week, depends on their system. Doesn't really matter. Um, you need to be a pretty advanced runner if you're going to be willing to do 28-day cycles. If you're going to do that, you really need to be um, at another level. So for most folks, 21 days is optimal. Two weeks hard, one week easy. From the macro cycle, what we're doing from the bigger picture, it's basically standing back and saying, one of my favorite quotes is, what does the race require? And you're going to run a command performance event on one given day. And if it's a marathon, you're not going to get a second chance at it. It just is what it is. And so what we do is we then step back and look and say, within those hard weeks, what's the work that we need to get done to be sure that we're ready for that race? Sometimes that'll include these varying pace workouts that we talked about. Sometimes it's marathon distance runs on your long run. Sometimes it's closing in that. Sometimes it's doing workouts in that zone. But basically, it's standing back and saying, what are the things I need to make sure? 
so, so a marathoner will, will recognize this. I've got certain athletes who, who tell me if they don't get six 20-plus mile runs in, they're not ready to run a marathon. <laughs> I think they're absolutely I, – I, I do not understand that in any way, shape, or form. But for them, in that macro, right, in that macro cycle, they know what the race is going to require of them. And then that means having a great starting line experience that says, I'm prepared for this day. And so that means in that cycle, if it's eight, if it's eight – months or six months or whatever they better build in appropriately those 20 those six 20 mile long runs what you do is really not as important as you believing in what you do but you do need to look at it and then you need to periodize and make sure that in those cycles the appropriate amount of work is being done either physiologically or effort-based or to get the long run in to achieve what you want to this is the same we write macro cycles for the absolute beginner runner all the way up to our world beaters and our Olympic trials, Olympic Games qualifiers. It's an important global picture, an important year-long picture of what it is. In my suggestion, almost all macro cycles should not, mostly shouldn't be too much shorter than six months. In some cases, they'll be four months for our much more advanced runners. Um, or if you're going from a marathon base into a really short 5K, 10K base, like many of our trainers will or many of our athletes are going to be doing because they just did a huge marathon base training and we're going to cut them down for about eight weeks to get them faster that's another macro cycle but it's within a bigger bigger picture um but all athletes at every level should be doing this six to eight month um windows beyond that it's really hard for the human being to stay focused on one given task yeah. uh, and we break it down generally into four kind of buckets over those months we start with and, and oftentimes these are combined sort of a base training and speed development block to start off yes while you're working on base mileage building your mileage up and maybe a little bit of efficiency form efficiency speed work with lots of recovery to help prime the systems for the work that's going to be happening from the speed standpoint later so you start with that base and speed development then go into strength the strength program or strength module where you're doing a lot of that aerobic power and and kind of upper end aerobic conditioning work as well as building kind of raw strength and, sp and speed and power from a just a leg speed standpoint so and you're lots doing, and lots so and lots of hills so you're doing hills and things mm -hmm. like that that's quintessential idiot <laughs> and then you go into a race specific speed block the third segment where you're refining your race specific pacing and then a taper at the end to Make sure your body's rested and recovered for race day. So that's generally how we break it down. But it can also, you know, as you say, things can kind of be mixed and and mingled depending on the athlete and the purpose and goal for their for their event. Uh, so, with that in mind, how should the runner then be thinking about those macro cycles and then stringing macro cycles together over the course of maybe a couple of years to make sure they're continuing to build? Yeah, so that's the sort of global cycle. We, I call it that because I don't know how you get more macro than ma you know, meta, maybe a meta cycle, right? Uh, but it's, it's looking at your long-term goal and recognizing that getting there is going to take a while. Um, and so those macro cycles are developed around race-specific um, finish results that allow you to then plug in the appropriate times and goal times and things that you want to do from a training perspective. But the, the, the more meta level is that sort of global, that global cycle is all about trying to get down the road to the place that you want to be. So if like so many people who are trying to get a Boston qualifier, that sort of global view, that sort of meta level is the most important thing. Because if you look at getting from 
here to there in a short period of time, it becomes untenable and it's just not possible to get there. And, and I see so many folks chasing that Boston qualifier. As soon as somebody tells me they want to qualify for Boston, if they're more than 10 minutes away from their goal time, I tell them 18 months, don't even talk to me if, it's not, if you're not willing to be that consistent, which means that they would go through three minimum of three macro cycles in that window of time. So that means they've got the first macro cycle to get used to the butt kicking that's going on. Number two, it's to them to figure out that the butt kicking is good for them. <laughs> and by the third one, they're actually ready to actually take advantage of it. And they're fit enough to be in a position, as we call it, fit enough to train for the thing that they really want. And once somebody jumps 10 more sec- ten more minutes or 15 more minutes in a marathon or at a 10K, trying to jump another two to three minutes, in a, a minute or two minutes in a 10K, I mean, you've got to then go back and recuperate, recover, and then get back at it. So, you know, the other thing about that is that global cycle has built in these down weeks. And, you know, you talked about the sort of four things and you kind of look, think of it as a banana split, right? Your, your base period is your bananas, um, uh, your race, your uh, sort of strength phase and your race prep phase is sort of your ice cream and your, and your, and your uh, whipped cream. And then your taper is the cherry on top. Um, in my coaching system, I don't usually put many cherries on top of my, I usually keep it pretty generic that way but um generally maybe some nuts yeah after that after that was after that you that banana split you got to step back you know satiation you're done you got to take a little bit of a break and then be visioning out to what's next and if you don't have that global vision that big picture of where you want to be um it makes it difficult i mean i think about you chris how long ago we talked about the goal you wanted to run at this past boston and how long we worked to get to that that's a that's a, or what we did with Alice and Maxis, one of our goals of anytime somebody's trying to get to the Olympic trials. We're in a four year global cycle that's fitted in with many multiple macro cycles within that global meta cycle. But that whole plan is to get ready for that last, for that very, very last event. And um, in my opinion, and this is definitely me showing my colors and, you know, wearing my heart on my sleeve, in my opinion, no disrespect to people out there running, because if you're just running for running's sake, God bless you. I think it's fantastic and it's wonderful. If you're continuing to listen to this particular episode or any of our podcasts, you probably have a goal in mind. And in my vision, that command performance or some big meta level command performance is why I'm a coach. It's why I'm in this business to start with because that stuff is so amazing. And it's the it's the stuff of human you know, it's what the Odyssey and the Iliad were written about. It's what a being alive is all about, is setting some kind of scary, auda- hairy, audacious goal out there that just spooks you out. But it's so far away that you don't have to focus on it day to day. You can break it into the micro, then into the macro, and then the meta, if you follow the plans, will get where they need to get. The other thing to mention in the context of all of this is that as you're thinking about long-term development over two, three, four-year cycle, it's important to mix it up in terms of race distances, in terms of the pace work that you're doing. So as you're doing different macro cycles, personally, I advise my athletes, and I follow this personally as well, not to do more than one marathon a year and to mix it up with some half marathon work, with some 10K focused work, so that you're working all of those energy systems at different times and then therefore building everything higher so that the next time you go run a marathon, you're more prepared and people often lose sight of that when they get into this mindset of chasing marathons every six months. It ends up stunting their long-term development because they're not working all the systems. And but it takes a little patience <laughs> maybe to think about it longer term than that. But it's really critical to getting to your potential versus sort of prematurely st- stunting your growth because you're always focused on doing the same thing. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think, we were just talking about the energy systems. We talked about four of them, the aerobic and the anaerobic. If you're not getting ready for a 5K, then you are almost never working those other two energy systems that we were talking about. So you're never working the anaerobic power, which is like four times 400 all out. And somebody who runs a marathon might say, why in the world can this benefit me? I'm, I'm telling you. It's an energy system that the human body utilizes in order for to have effective performance. If we don't ever work on that system, if we go a year, two years, five years, six years without working it, we're, we're not going to be the most effective runner that we can be. And so you have to have those windows where you focus on shorter distances. It also allows you to get in the mindset of understanding a crucial piece. I was just talking to one of my athletes about this today. The corollaries between the 5K and the marathon to me, they're almost the same race. Now, bear with me for a minute, right? <laughs> one takes 20 minutes or under to do for many people, and the other one takes you know three to four hours for people to do. But what's going on in the context of that race is the same. You can't go out too fast. You got to play it just right, but you got to stay on the edge to get where you want to be. At the end, it's going to hurt like shit, and you need to be prepared for it. What better way to get ready for the future marathon pain than to do it in a twenty-minute micro in a twenty-minute window where you could do three to four to five of them in a, at the end of a cycle and be a really well-trained, ready-to-execute athlete. And I I truly think we live in Austin, Texas. We live in a marathon-centric town. It has taken I for years I've been arguing this point that we need to do more and more. 5K and 10K based training in our cycles. Um, it seems that there seems to be sort of a, a, an energy moving towards that, whether it's us banging our heads up against the wall and banging the drum enough that people are actually listening or what it is, I don't know. But this cycle, I've got, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 15 people that are interested in doing this and they're doing more of that kind of work because they know it's going to make them better at the half marathon, at the marathon, and in the long run, it's just going to make them better runners. I always tell people you can you can train for a marathon without actually doing a marathon <laughs> because the faster you can run a 5K, the faster you can run a marathon. The faster you can run a 10K, the faster you can run a marathon. The faster you can run a half marathon, the faster you can run a marathon. And when you're training for those other distances, you are improving your ability to ultimately go do that bigger race, which often gets most of the glory and attention, but it's just one piece of the overall puzzle. And the marathon has no physiological benefit. It doesn't sit in any of those fancy in those fancy physiological boxes that we talked about. It's sort of yeah. a the arbitrary race distance decided because the queen of ink, because <laughs> a, guy, a guy named Philippides ran from marathon to Athens, and then the queen of England decided at the second or third Olympiad that she wanted that they wanted the finish to come right in front of her uh, right in front of her house right. and uh, Whatever the place that is, I don't even know the name of the, the where we're the palace, whatever Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Buckingham Palace. So there is our marathon distance. Like, are you kidding me? Like, so it's not in any. It, it whereas weirdly, the half marathon is in this exact physiological system we were talking about. Sorry, I just get off on these yeah, tangents so sometimes. But now let's bring it all together because we've got to wrap this. We talked about feeling based training or effort based training, and we've talked about every day has a purpose. Now. Bringing it all together, your body, you have to listen to your body as you go through these cycles. And naturally, Steve, you're going to write a program for your athletes that says, do this on that day. And you might do it, you know, two, three months, four months in, in advance. But when you get to those days, sometimes it's different and you, and you need to change and adapt. So let's talk about response regulated work and adaptation in the context of training, because in the midst of all of this, no matter what your training plan calls for, you still have to listen to how you feel and adjust accordingly within a certain window. What does that mean and look like? It means recovering, plain and simple, simple. 
the most important part of nearly all of these different energy systems that we're talking about, it's about getting recovered. So you can do work and you can do bouts of work, whether they're effort-based or pace-based, whether they're in a time and a context of what you're doing in a, in a micro or a meta or a macro or a meta sort of cycle. But ultimately, if you're not recuperating and recovering, if you're not listening to those sensory informa- that sensory information, or if you're not very good at the sensory stuff, that's okay. You get, some people, coach, people pay for coaches, and you know what those coaches do? They build them in and making sure that they listen to their bot, that they, that they at least take the down weeks. And that's why many coaches scream and yell at their athletes to slow down, to listen to their body, to recuperate and recover, because guess what? Without the recovery, you are never going to get to the next level. It's not the actual workout that makes you better. What makes you better is your ability to take in that hard work assimilate it recuperate and recover from it and then go do another bout hopefully a little bit changed and a little bit different hopefully not exactly the same workout over and over again so you can get the physiological responses you're looking for which is getting faster but there's only one little piece one hard effort and that is important but it is nowhere near the most important thing the most important thing is to be sure that all of this is where effort-based running comes in and we're planning out what's going on in your overall overall daily training or monthly training or weekly training cycle is putting it together is getting recuperated and recovered. That's the most important thing. And that that's what it all comes down to. And if you're not in that space, then you're better off just running easy all the time. We like to say around rogue that no one workout is that important. No one workout matters more than the consistency you can put in over months and years. One of the hardest things I've found in my personal training journey is deciding when to say uncle when when you wake up on a given day and you don't feel it sometimes there's magic in fighting through and pushing through that and still getting the work done because that has a mental training component but sometimes you're supposed to say hey coach today i'm not feeling it. i need to do something else like you told some of the athletes today during that workout you're not hitting it so back off and, and just run back and one of the ways i've found that's helped me figure that out and this is i this is a tip I got from the great running philosopher George Sheehan is he used to check his heart rate every day when he woke up, like right after he woke up. And there's an app on the iPhone heart rate app where you can basically use your iPhone's camera to measure your heart rate with your finger every morning. And so when I'm in a training, heavy training mode, I wake up, I check my heart rate. And over time, you're able to see kind of within a range what what's normal and and for me, if I'm really trained and resting and everything's great, you know, I'll be maybe 45 to 48 will be my heart rate. When I'm a little bit stressed, I'll see more like 50 to 53, knowing that that's okay. That's sort of like a hard week. You know, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to see a 52 and I'll, I'll know that I can still go do the work that day. But if I start to see 55, 56 and uh, above on a given day, I know that something's wrong. Maybe I'm getting sick. Maybe I haven't recovered as well as I need to. And that's when I need to raise the red flag and say, hey, look, it's time to back off today. So that's a tip I have for people in the context of this response regulated kind of a discussion of when to know when not to just go do it and gut it out. Final thoughts on this thing, Steve, before we wrap. Well, first of all, yes, 
Yes, yes. What you're saying is something I tell most of the athletes that I work with when we get to that next level of talking beyond times and paces and workouts and efforts. It's how can I figure out what my best effort is. And it is your morning resting heart rate. And I ask people to do it three times a week because it's super simple. They're here three times a week. But I cannot recommend that enough. Write it down in your training log or make sure that it's somewhere you can see it on a consistent basis. And utilize it to be sure that you're getting recuperated and recovered and that you're able to do the hard work that you need to do. I wanted to end this discussion with a really short quote from one one person I consider probably uh, one of the great coaches in the world. His name's Renato Canova or Canova, different people pronounce his last name a little differently. It's a, there's a beautiful quote. It comes off of the Let's Run forum. So um, number one, English is not his first language. Number two, it, if you read the entire quote, it would be amazing, but we're already running way over time on this episode. So I'm just going to share with you the most important part of it. It basically says, don't forget that the most important problem is to make easy what is difficult. So think about that, that the biggest thing that you're trying to do in your training It's to take what was hard or what is hard and make it easy. If you can keep that in mind, then effort-based training becomes a lot simpler. Maybe not easy, but a lot simpler. And it also allows you to take the ideas of periodization or knowing what you're doing on any given day and being sure that you're careful about that. You're able to then process that in a way that ensures that that difficulty, that hardness over time becomes easier. And anybody that's run a goal time and saying a marathon that that has allowed them to improve say from you know 255 down to 250 they will tell you that the, the single most incredible thing is that the paces that they ran before that they thought were hard are easy and 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 canova's quote goes exactly to that point and that just continue to remember and keep cognizant of the fact that the most important problem is to make easy what was once difficult there you go. We're already over time. People may have to listen to this one in two two bouts, but that's okay. We are finished with episode 10. Today we talked about our second and third primary training principles. One, about feeling-based training and how effort is important. And then two, how every day has a purpose and you should be working those different efforts on different days to achieve your goal. We will come back in several weeks and finish this series where we talk about the fourth and fifth principles from our first episode. But if you haven't already, listen to our first episode, number one, our seventh episode where we talk about Miles Matter. And then, of course, thank you for joining us today. We will wrap it. As always, check us out on Facebook at forward slash Rogue Running. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Rogue Running. You can find us online at roguerunning.com. So for Steve and I, we'll check it out or check out today. Talk to you soon.